Man, I can't believe this is actually happening. Uh, so I'm going to take a deep breath and savor this last moment. Okay. Um, for o- over a year and a half, we've been doing the Welcome to Chicago podcast, as, as many of you know uh, about the band Chicago. And um, the first day that we taped that pilot episode of the Notorious podcast... There was pretty much nothing in my fridge at this time except my favorite coffee drink, Grady's Cold Brew. We all dipped in and we had the idea, well, what if we just, everything we drank on the podcast, we kind of tried to court potential sponsorships by talking it up. And Grady's quickly became a major talking point. Um, We wrote a song about Grady's, several other original songs for the podcast featured mentions of Grady's, lots of Grady shout-outs in every episode, I would say. That's about right. Right? That's how you would assess it? Yeah. We spent some time chronicling your debilitating uh, addiction to the stuff. Sam one time said he didn't like it, but then he went back on that. Uh, Grady on... More on that later. I I do have a story about that. Yes, yes. So a friend, Taylor Berman... I think was the first person to hit up Grady's on Twitter and be like, have you heard this? And finally they listened, you know, we didn't know what the operation at Grady's was like, but it's, it's a, it's a small business from the Bronx and Grady is a real man. Grady Laird. Wonderful man. Wonderful man. A real man, both in that he exists and he's like a true example of how a man should be. Exactly. That's That's what I say a lot, a lot. Um, first we started getting free cold brew from them and then eventually when we hit Chicago 14 it was time we took our recording equipment and we taped an episode at the Grady's cold brewery with Grady as the guest and it was a real highlight of last year and now here we are with this podcast on Osiris Media and we're really happy to say that after all this time, we can finally call Grady's Cold Brew an official sponsor of our podcast, an official sponsor of Late Era. I couldn't be more happy to support a product. I don't know. Do you guys want to say something? Um, I'll just say, you know, thank you, Grady. Now that we have the official sponsorship gro- going, we're kind of like rolling in free cold brew, which is amazing. You know, it's like filling the bathtub up with cold brew kind of thing, sucking it down, getting your buzz on. Mm -hmm. But even before that, in the midst of this heat wave, working from home, I had gotten into the habit of regularly paying for the big box of Grady's cold brew to be delivered to my house. We're real customers. And uh, yeah, we're just really happy about it. Yeah, I'd like to say I am a hot coffee guy, always have been, whether it's the dead of winter or it's 100 degrees out, which, as Winston alluded to, was my skepticism of cold brew. But I am at a point now where I am drinking as much cold brew as I am. I still start my day with a hot coffee, then I re-up with Grady's, and it keeps me going all day. We want to talk about this new way that we're doing it. I mean, I've done it before. It really is a way to save money. Grady's cold brew kit where you actually, there's a bag and it's really easy. You put four bags in, you brew it yourself. It can be in your fridge for quite a while, tasting fresh. It's got a sweetness to it because it's got chicory. It's New Orleans style. It's so smooth. Anyway, we we fucking love Grady's. And uh, that much is clear. We are pleased to be able to offer you a special deal on your first order through Grady's website. Grady'scoldbrew.com. If you enter the promo code LATEERA20, you can get 
20% off your first order. So that's late era 20 capital L capital E and uh, you can secure yourself. You know, you can begin the rest of your life. Basically. God knows you when you see it. God knows you got to weep. God knows the secrets of your heart. He'll tell him to you when you sleep. Hey everyone. Welcome back to late era. The podcast about uh, late career records by classic musicians brought to you by Osiris Media. My name is Andy Cush, and I'm here with my co-hosts. You going to say your name? Yeah, you say your own name. Uh, my name is Winston Cook Wilson. I'll say I'm not used to introducing myself, but I will. My name is Sam Sadomsky. Happy to be here. It's hard to recognize you. Sam's wearing uh, new shades today. Rock and roll. Trying on a trying to add a little glitz and glamour to my life. You kind of have the vibe of a guy that we're going to be discussing at some length on uh, this episode of Late Era. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. I, there's so many people in this episode. I'm a little nervous about which one you're referring to. Uh, slash. Okay. I was going to say your look is the look of somebody who's recently become a podcast celebrity and has you know put a down payment on some property. And it's feeling like a big shot. Thank you so much. Today we are talking about Under the Red Sky, the 1990 album uh, by Bob Dylan, his 27th. It is a weird nursery rhyme infused star studded cast fucked up slab of an album. Wow. That's an intense way to introduce it, but there's a lot of truth to it, I'd say. Yeah. And if you can't handle it, tune out now. Yeah. Maybe the most forgotten album of Dylan's career. That's sort of sort of why we picked it. But first, as we have established, I'm uh, an impressionist, amateur impressionist, and I don't normally do it for people, but I'm using this podcast as an opportunity to try some stuff out. So I want to see if you can if you guys can guess who I'm who this is an impression of, okay? All right. By all means. Yeah. Ooh, mama. I'm I'm not a folk singer. I'm not a poem or a folk. I'm Ju- I'm Judas. That's what you call Billie me. Eilish. Close. <laughs> Are you Judas? That that's my that's my blood on the tracks. Are you Jesus like being walked up to the cross to be crucified and you're I was going to say a character in Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I'll give you a hint. I'm a bard. Shakespeare. No. Sam, can you get it? What'd you say? I was saying, are you doing an impression of Andy? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Andy's Andy's probably the person that I know personally who's closest to this celebrity. Wow. I'm Robert Zimmerman, a Greenwich Village. I used to sit by the bedside of Woody Guthrie. Dave Van Ronk. (laughs) So close. I'm Bob Dylan. I'm I'm Bob Dylan. Oh. Oh. Okay. Yes. Dylan. Cool. I get it. I think people are going to love that segment. <laughs> it's just an yeah. enjoyable for now all. That, now that I know who it is, I'm like, uh, yes. Like, yeah. how did I not know that? Of course. I get that blood on the yeah. tracks was, is like an allusion to the album title now. I thought it was like more, more, more literal. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you said I'm Judas, I was thinking, oh, well, he's Judas. I think it might have been clear, like, at that concert, it was like someone else calling him Judas. Like he didn't say, "I'm right. Judas." I should have been like, 
if I'm Judas, what does that make you, man? <laughs> yeah, I think I definitely would have gotten it if, if you said that. <laughs> yeah, if you would have said that, I'd have been like, you're Bob Dylan. Wow, yes, yes, we're getting into it. People already know you two as scholars of Dylan because uh, you've already recently been on a Dylan podcast. So people are probably going to turn this shut off because they don't want to hear you guys talk about it again. It's true. We are professional Dylan podcasters. When we recorded our recent appearance about Dylan on the Pitchfork podcast, I mentioned both Under the Red Sky and my co-host Winston Cook Wilson. And both of those things were edited out by the man at Condé Nast who doesn't want you to hear about Winston or this album that we're talking about today. Wait, I was I was edited out. I didn't listen to it yet because I don't. Give yeah, you were edited out. Well, that leads to the, an admission that we have to make, which is that this podcast, this intro, is being recorded at a different time than the actual body of the podcast that you're about to hear. So I thought we could use this opportunity also to reflect on how our lives were different when we recorded this podcast initially and what people should listen for as kind of like points of contrast in the episode it's a great question that's a great question um right off the bat superficially i have a microphone now so at that point in my career as a podcaster i was really interested in this kind of gritty lo-fi sound when you're a young podcaster that's really exciting to you but you get older and you want to clean it up a little bit Mm -hmm. and you want to say you know you want to say I want as many people to hear this as possible, and that's kind of where I'm at now as an artist. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you kind of want to prove to yourself yeah. that you can that you can ride with the big dogs, right? Except or uh, lead the big dogs. If you can't rock with the big dogs, get off the porch. That's yeah, which is what my shirt says. <laughs> I was hiding out um, in an undisclosed location on Long Island when we recorded this. You might hear the sound of the of the Long Island sound rolling by my window. You won't hear it anymore. I'm back in Brooklyn. I was in a very nice house. I felt coddled. You might hear a certain contentedness in my voice now that I'm back on the mean streets of NYC. I've mm. toughened back up. Yeah, you kind of sounded like a little baby in this podcast. Yeah, you sound like a little fucking baby. (laughs) When I am doing the goo-goos and gagas, it's not true to who I am. Yeah, man, I definitely toughened up. I was just kind of trying to find my place in that post-COVID monastic Thoreau-style solitude up here in my claustrophobic Brooklyn apartment. But now I've started to feel in touch with the city and... uh, Obviously, our fame as podcasters has grown, so there's a lot more personal opportunities now to be chilling, going to super spreader events that people are uh, holding in our honor. So, You know, it's kind of a good thing of COVID that, that it's happening right now because we can kind of still wander the streets like normal people because we have our masks up. I've had zero people come up to me and say they know who I am because of my podcast. To that I say, thank you. I'm grateful for my privacy. I think I deserve that. I thought maybe that's why you're rocking the shades today. I'll say this. I do, I do find myself wearing them very often. Okay. Enough about your fucking sunglasses. Is this where we jump through the wormhole and time warp back uh, to about two months ago and, and record this podcast? What you're about to hear are three young men who had the world at their fingertips and did not know what awaited them. And I hope you enjoy the journey as much as we did. Mm. Amen. Ten thousand men 
dressed in Oxford blue. How did we all come to Bob Dylan in the first place? That's sort of maybe where we should start. Because uh, he was one of my earliest musical heroes that wasn't like Limp Biscuit or Blink-182. Who are your other two favorite bands? Yeah, that's the whole. That's the Holy Trinity. Bis- Beatles, Biscuit, Bob, Bob. Blink. <laughs> the yeah. four Bs. Yes. Um, and that's why you have four bees tattooed on um, your chest. Yeah, and that's not the only place. But yeah, the, for a while <laughs> it was the, the they were the last bee. I would say Bob was the last bee, and in recent years he's been popped up to the top bee. Wow. Okay. Yeah, With B- biscuits. I've sad sad to say way down there at this point in my life. <laughs> biscuits um, got to be above Blink for you though. Um, uh, depends on the week and the the day and what kind of how many gl- cups of coffee I've had. But anyway, let's get <laughs> off that. Sam, why don't you? Sam Sam's probably the the biggest Dylan scholar of all of us. So why don't you tell us about your experience with Dylan, your first experience with this album, and you know, yeah. free associate. Sure. Well, I'll try to keep this fairly brief. But I came to Dylan because I was just like a huge classic rock kid. And I was like really coming to my awakening with music right around like the early 2000s. So I distinctly remember Love and Theft being released on Mm 9-11. That's like one of those memories that'll die with me. It's just like, but yeah, I remember it got like five out of five in Rolling Stone, which to me meant a great deal at that point. And I just remember being like totally mystified by the record because I like knew Bob Dylan was important and based on like the reviews i knew this was a good album but like when i listened to it it's kind of there on under the red sky too but there's all this like nursery rhyme stuff and he's like cracking these like kind of dumb jokes and i just remember hearing tweedle d and tweedle dumb and being like what like what is he talking about i have that yeah so it's like i i definitely didn't get it but i i liked the world it introduced me to Modern Times was the next record and I saw him on that tour and I think all three of us saw Dylan at that point and his shows were just these weird uh, impressionistic nightmare versions of what a a Bob Dylan show is like I didn't recognize a single one of his songs he was like not even facing the crowd he was singing in this voice where you couldn't make out the words Uh, just like I don't know I kind of saw him as like the ant because like my i should also say i'm a huge springsteen fan that's like my gateway into everything so he was kind of like the everything springsteen did dylan didn't do like springsteen was so willing to like be the hero who people saw him as and you know embrace his legacy and play the hits and dylan was just like making these weird blues albums and stuff but i kind of dug into it deeper when I was in college. And by that point, I had listened to all the 60s records and stuff. And then I kind of got into stuff like New Morning and Infidels and like the stuff that was acclaimed, but sort of under the surface of the 60s stuff. And then I just kind of went all in and I couldn't get enough, you know, because with Dylan, it's kind of like he's one of those artists where Winston, one thing you said about him that I love is like, you don't see it as good or bad. Like you just, once you're in, you're in (laughs) and you kind of create your own rubric for what you want from it and what you expect. I would say like 
my path into Dylan is a little different from Sam's because I didn't uh, grow up listening to Dylan's contemporary music as it came out. So I feel like my path into Dylan was like a little more kind of maybe conventional or maybe I just feel that way because it was my path, but it was like kind of hearing Free Will and Bob Dylan in, in high school and following that through to Highway 61 Revisited and having a period of kind of thinking his other music sucked besides like the kind of high 60s, like super canonical stuff. And then I guess just very gradually realizing that that was wrong and now have gotten to a point where an album like Under the Red Sky is interesting to me. But I would say like in the in the entire scope of Dylan fandom, I'm maybe kind of like two thirds, three quarters of the way to the bottom. Like it gets so deep that, you know, as much time as I've spent thinking, reading, listening to him, which is a lot, uh, it feels like there are still these kind of like uncharted waters beyond where I've ever kind of seen or been myself this album was like interesting to me because I remember coming across this clip on YouTube a few years ago and it's from some documentary from the late 80s uh, in which Dylan is like hanging out in a parking lot talking to these little kids about the music that they like and what they like is like Rat and Judas Priest and it's like Dylan sort of with like sunglasses and a leather jacket like sort of trying to relate to these kids, but like can't help but being like super aloof and cool because he's Bob Dylan. And I remember thinking like, what is this? I need to learn more about this world. Uh, and kind of looking through his like, his discography, his discography from around that time. This is a little later than that documentary, uh, but kind of seeing like the name under the red sky is pretty cool and mysterious the cover has this kind of um, like Badlands, like sort of noir, dusty Midwest, like cool energy to it. Uh, and then like you listen to the first track and it's just like completely the opposite of that. It's this song called Wiggle Wiggle, uh, which you can kind of guess exactly what it's like from the name of it. And that juxtaposition was so funny to me. That was always my impression of this album until we decided to dig a little more deep into it for this podcast. When I was trying to get into like 60s and 70s music, Dylan was one of like the first five things along with the Beatles. And I was going to Borders and buying all the like bargain bin early CD versions of like bringing it all back home and highway 61. Like I would go one by one and go through the most famous ones and somewhere in there love and theft came out and I got that and was mystified by it. I, I didn't grow to love that in modern times until probably like the last five years. Time out of mind was great, but it wasn't one that I put on all the time until also pretty recent years. Blood on the Tracks was like my favorite album for a long time and still the New York Sessions versions of Blood on the Tracks is probably my favorite Dylan stuff still. It just has meant so much to me. I remember nerdily, I remember like Bonnie Vare, when Bonnie Vare came out came out and Four Emma came out, he was like talking a lot about New Morning. I remember that 
I was like, oh man, this is amazing. I was just obsessed with like, especially the first side of that as a piano player, the piano songs. I think that was the record where it really cracked open that I could listen to any period of any period of Dylan was like something I wanted to check out. New Morning had a similar cracking open role for me and my path into it was similarly kind of like cliched hipster dude, which was like the use of the man in me and the big Lebowski. Oh uh, yeah, that too. Yeah, that totally. Too. Yeah. There is a thing that's just like um, extremely exciting to me as a listener about someone like Dylan, where it's like pretty much any point in his career, you can find someone who that's who they like ride for it and who have someone who has like thought deeply about it. Like his catalog is just so ripe for that kind of fandom, which I'm always really drawn to. Like I love like works like that, that you can just like completely get lost in. But I do think that is a funny thing about Under the Red Sky, that it's just not one of those albums. It is just so minor. Like, there's no getting around the fact that there's there's just not the depth to it that people tend to expect from him. Yeah. This feels like the deepest kind of like, if you had to pick a single album, that's like, what is the most overlooked, under-discussed, kind of poorly thought of Dylan album this would certainly be on the short list of for it. Yeah. And what I'm interested in is like, okay, this guy is clearly like one of, you know, the four or five most important American artists of his era to me. This is perhaps his kind of laziest, most tossed off body of work that he ever produced is there something interesting there? Like, is the very fact that Bob Dylan is the one who made it, like, does that make it kind of worthy of our serious consideration? Because, like, the answer to that question is pretty unclear to me. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into it, but there are certain things he comes upon on this album that would be lasting, like, challenges he'd pose as a writer through like the next couple decades yeah and there are moments on the album that i think are really close to doing something pretty extraordinary but we'll get there yeah it's kind of the beginning of something and the end of something at the same time because i mean the notable thing is this comes before a period where he really just stops writing songs for the most extended period since the beginning of his career and and also that was precipitated too by just like a gradual commercial decline throughout most of the 80s and like declining quality of live shows um so it really was the last gasp of like this period down in the groove was also part of this approach and oh mercy in its way of like working with producers to revitalize his sound or shape his sound in some way and also working with like a shitload of guests and i think this is the last of like a certain amount of bloat that was going on in that period and but then also the beginning of a more opaque something or other that maybe we could talk about but it certainly feels real opaque just from the first moments of the record yeah should we listen to a little bit of wiggle wiggle yeah You know what that means? Hmm. <laughs> I feel my hips tingling. Yeah. 
This song starts out sounding kind of like it's got like a badass kind of rock and roll strut thing happening. The drums are so loud when this starts out. I was reading the Rolling Stone review of this from at the time, which refers to the tough trash can production sound. Right. Which feels very uh, accurate to the way the record sounds. Yeah, it makes you think it would sound like a you know like a tom waits record or something but it doesn't because it has that real 90s ugly snare sound yeah too. it's like it's, trash but also the same kind of snare sound you'd hear on any like slick 90s record somewhere yeah. some awful combination of the two things yeah it's like a it's like a modern waterproof plastic trash can not like <laughs> yes. romanticized <laughs> exactly. oscar the grouch aluminum trash can yeah yeah which let's face it would be ignorable if we had a decent song i mean lord knows production or performance hasn't stalled my appreciation of dylan in the past but there's something else going on here that i think makes this a particularly notable recording which is the fact that the lyrics mostly consist of him talking about wiggling around <laughs> yeah. wiggling like wiggle 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 like fill in the blank is sort of like the whole lyrical prompt for the song yeah and then he kind right. of personifies wiggle too right it sort of it sort of reminds me as an album opener of rainy day women yeah. Of just like the most kind of like aggressively silly lyrical premise that you maybe think is going to change or be developed at some point and it just is hammered on over and over for the entire song. Can I say yeah. though at this point in my life that I think I'd rather listen to Wiggle Wiggle than Rainy Day Women? I've just heard it too many times and <laughs> there's more for me to grasp in Wiggle Wiggle over time, you know. You can imagine a group of musicians assembled around Dylan in a studio hearing this being his song, being like, I don't know, he's like a genius. Like, maybe it'll be a huge hit. Like, it's so distinctive. I think about that often with this album doesn't have quite as much of the like kind of like gospel backing singer thing as like some of the 80s albums, but it's there a little bit. I think often about like those singers who are probably just like working, collecting a paycheck or whatever, being like, oh, I get to work with Bob Dylan today. That's amazing. And like showing up to the studio and being like, oh, these are the lyrics you want me to sing? (laughs) (laughs) Right. On this revisit of Under the Red Sky, I was like, it occurred to me that the goal, maybe even a subconscious goal is to like have these really childlike stories and characters brushing up against like truly apocalyptic scenes and settings. Like even the album cover you were talking about, Andy, there's something sort of um, like end of the world about that. And when that hits, like it does for me in the title track, I kind of hear like the blueprint for stuff like modern times and Tempest where you're like dealing with like these kind of archetypical characters and like scenes full of blood and vengeance and stuff and i can get down with that but i think he hadn't found the balance yet or he wasn't willing to put in the work to turn them into compelling portraits so you're just sort of left with like is he still going on about things that wiggle there there is a quote from don was who is the co-producer of this album 
who says, actually, I find it similar, very similar, the precursor to modern times. I can't believe that nobody's noticed the connection. So Sam did. you can tell well, what it was that you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Email him. Under the red, under the red sky. I think this, it's, it's like limerickish. It's like partly like feels like a Grimm's fairy tale vibe. It's got like more of a structure like an old ballad meant to scare children or something. It's a fairy tale meant to scare Dylan fans. Yes. Yeah, you guys. I think you guys are more sympathetic to under the red sky the song than i am i will say it's one of the worst vocal performances i've ever heard from dylan it's horrible i'm gonna be straight up honest with you this is a top three song on this record for me yeah it might be my number one on the record let's give it a play yeah it starts promising it starts out like a song from highway 61 revisited Exactly. Yeah, it's like just like Tom Thumb's Blues or yes. something. Was a little boy. Was a little boy. I'm with you so far. And I'm still with girl. you. And they lived in an alley under the red sky. <laughs> Here's where you lose me. Every single line in the song has that sort of repetition for emphasis. I'm just like, I mean, I know Bob Dylan. We with his vocals, you're gonna get what you get. But it, it to me, it's Don was his responsibility to be like, all right, maybe let's do one more take, or like have a cup of coffee and then we'll do it. But yeah, he's just not present in this vocal. Should, should we talk a little bit about like the circumstances of the uh, making of this record as we understand them? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. If if listeners aren't familiar with this guy Don was, I can imagine that he is going to be a figure that pops up not infrequently on this podcast. Hopefully every uh, episode. Yeah, <laughs> he's a producer. He's best known as a producer, also a bass player, uh, who has kind of made a niche for himself as some sort of kind of guru figure to the aging rock star. Uh, he produced this album. Um, he produced like 90s. Uh, David Crosby, Jackson Brown, Rolling Stones records. He produced Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. Yes, masterpiece album there that he, yes. Yeah, an incredible record, which like, uh, from my understanding is that was kind of his pedigree going into this so far. Like he had done Nick of Time, which like if you're Bob Dylan and that's the pedigree of the guy walking in, I could understand being like, well, that's a great record and I want to work with this guy. Uh, Now he like plays in Bob Weir's wolf bros band he's the guy who looks like just some wook from the audience who like wandered on stage to pick up a bass and play with him uh his look is kind of like a pile of scarves like that's what he looks like super super dope super dope look so he had this band called was not was that was sort of this like funk pop thing they have the song walk the dinosaur which you've definitely heard even if you don't know the name of it 
Uh, and he was kind of like this middle-aged guy in a band that had sort of a freakish moment of popularity in the late 80s. And he was on tour with Millie Vanilli, Paula Abdul, and Tone Loke when he got <laughs> yes. the call that led to him producing Under the Red Sky. Uh, according to him, he and his partner in this band, we hired two curly-haired ringers to cover for us on stage and jump ship from the tour. But they didn't jump ship for the Under the Red Sky sessions. They jumped ship to score a movie called The Freshman, starring a very old Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick. And part of what they had Damn. to do for this movie was to cut a version of Maggie's Farm that was going to be performed on screen in the movie by a guy named Burt Parks, who's kind of like a second tier Ed, Ed Sullivan, uh, an actual TV presenter who's playing himself in the movie. They were cutting a version of Maggie's Farm that he was going to sing or lip sync in the movie. Come wow. to find out Bob Dylan is playing in Toronto while they are making this movie in Toronto. So the was not was guys plus Matthew Broderick plus Helen Hunt, who is Matthew Broderick's girlfriend at the time, <laughs> go to see Bob Dylan. Is this nineteen eighty nine or nineteen ninety? This is eighty nine or ninety, I'm not sure. Okay. They they go backstage while some dudes are just impersonating them back on this tour for MTV that they're supposed to be doing. They give Bob Dylan a copy of Burt Parks singing Maggie's Farm for this movie that they're scoring. And Bob Dylan later calls them up based on this interaction and asks them to produce his next record, which is Under the Red Sky. Wow. What a, uh, what a dream. Yes, yeah. Bard. That's that's a phrase <laughs> we should be using today. It's a yeah phrase. You know, this this podcast fortuitously comes out before the release of Dylan's first album of original songs in what eight years. Um, yeah. So that's a phrase that we've been in this trio using often in text to uh, express our enthusiasm for whatever Dylan's doing. So I'll say that's a yes, Bard moment. Right there. That is a yes yeah. bard moment for sure. It's a yes bard, but it's also this is an interesting time for an outside producer to be coming into Dylan's life, and I imagine Don was was feeling somewhat ex super excited and somewhat conflicted because just to catch listeners up, the '80s for Dylan are all over the place. He begins it in his evangelical Christian phase, slowly eases out of it. He makes a record with Mark Knopfler called infidels that kind of like attempts to modernize his sound and succeeds and he makes a record called empire burlesque that it also attempts to modernize his sound in a more um like hip kind of like digital type way and mostly fails um then he's sort of like is adrift with these more um collage like albums of various scraps and experiments and then he has this comeback called Oh Mercy, which is produced by Daniel Lanois and is just like answers a lot of Dylan fans and critics prayers for what he should be doing. There's more political songwriting. There's more spiritual songwriting. The sound really suits his middle aged voice and 
it's kind of like a callback to these like darker sort of more um you know like um prophetic type Dylan records where there's a lot to dig into so that record is sort of a comeback and now Don was is the next guy he reaches out to and is like you know let's keep up that momentum but the approach is almost completely opposite to what Omercy did then there's this other parallel thing that's going on that I think is interesting and complicates things a little bit because they're with Down in the Groove and these 80s albums, uh, there's this, yeah, this stylized production. And Dylan's live show was equally, like, kind of bombastic. And he would tour with bands and have them back him up and just have a lot of his backing singers, etc., that he would use throughout the 80s. Um, and then he got, at a certain point, criticized so much for his live show by people he was working with that he decided that he needed to get back to like being being kind of like the center of what was going on on stage rather than hiding behind these things so then he starts doing these concerts with just a quartet and uh he'd play stuff throughout from throughout his career a lot of traditional songs and covers and you know it maybe kind of went along with that idea with oh mercy that he was revitalizing himself in some way that be- was the start of what became called the never ending tour, which is going on till this day, which is this thing where Dylan does like an absurd amount of shows every year. And uh, he launched into that in 88 and was definitely in the heat of it when under the red sky came out. Um, but yeah, it, th- there was just this opposite thing from the stripped down thing he was trying to do live, which quickly became pretty erratic in quality. Um, versus this studio thing with Don Was, which is like all these musicians and a bunch of guest stars and everything. And he wouldn't let anyone he was touring with play on his album. So it was like also this completely, wanted to keep the two things completely separate, which is also strange. So a lot of contradictory things going on. Another concurrence is the Traveling Wilburys. Yes. Trying to squeeze in Traveling Wilburys recording sessions alongside this record yeah it just seemed like his attention was divided (laughs) so it's yeah it it makes a lot of sense that this record feels tossed off it's also funny okay so we've like alluded to the idea of these guest stars i'm like help me out here but we have stevie ray vaughn playing guitar at one point we have elton john playing piano at one point i think george harrison is playing guitar at one point uh, and uh, we have Al Cooper, the famous who famously played organ on Like a Rolling Stone to kind of like hammer home Winston's point about this kind of weird emulation of the 60s sound, uh, David Crosby, uh, these kind of all-star bands, uh, which Don Was would like assemble Basically, Dylan would go into the studio. Oh, Slash also. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Don't be reminded. Who, uh, who later guitar. did his own cover of Wiggle Wiggle for a tribute album. That's I didn't know that. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Dylan would show up to the studio 
after I think having spent the studio in spent all day in the studio with the Wilburys would then show up to the studio to record this at night. And Don was would essentially have a different band for him to play with. And often these bands are not just like ordinary session musicians. It's like slash and Elton John. Uh, (laughs) But the record does not have the feeling of a star studded record at all. Like it is kind of interesting how these big, huge stars are sort of just playing the role of like anonymous session musician. Like it's hard to tell which is the song with Stevie Ray Vaughan versus which is the one with Slash versus versus which is the one with Elton John. This is a quote that Al Cooper has from this, the down the highway Howard sounds biography of Dylan is he, um, Al Cooper worked with him a whole bunch, sixties, early seventies. And you know, they knew each other well. And, uh, he was like, yeah, this is this was a, what I call a hood album, which means that Dylan <laughs> apparently throughout all these sessions, he was wearing a hoodie with the hood up and was just like extremely difficult to communicate with. I like that Al Cooper refers to this as a hood album and not the hood album, right. which implies to me that Al Cooper has this whole sort of private categorization system of Dylan albums of like which ones are hood albums and which ones aren't. And I would, I would love to know what some of the other hood albums are. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's funny to read, uh, Dylan's recollections of these sessions, which are sort of like, I didn't really have any material prepared. Uh, Don was, was kind of supplying me with these crazy bands every day and I didn't really know what to do. Uh, he seems like he was pretty worn out, not very engaged with what was happening around him. And Don was his recollections, which are like, yeah, man, it was great. Like Dylan came in, he just like played these songs and the band learned him and the energy was so loose and, and he was feeling so good and and we were just all having a great time. So Don was still stands by this album. Which is amazing. I love that. Yeah. He says that of all the albums that he's produced in his career, it's one of a very few that he still listens to for pleasure. That's so tight. That that kind of goes along with his look now, like where he's ended up, you know. Yeah. If you think, if you try to imagine, what does a fan of Under the Red Sky look like? <laughs> yeah. What's Under the Red <laughs> Sky? The person. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the thing where it's like I can imagine working on this record. You're like, oh my god, it doesn't sound like anything else. Like, and it's also like we have Bob Dylan on record being like, I wasn't bringing anything into the studio. I'd come up with lyrics and the melody on the spot. Um, but like for Don was, it must've been like, he's channeling something. Yeah, like, totally. he, there, there's a blank piece of paper and he put something on there. Like I could imagine that being pretty electrifying, especially if you're like, you know, a producer and Dylan's one of your heroes. And like, this is what he's choosing to do with you. It really reminds me of like a rapper. Yeah, yeah true. totally. A, a modern like day Kanye, the all-star band thing, just having people assembled would be that like Kanye assembly line like yes except yeah. someone else assembling the all-star band right. for him yes. <laughs> without his involvement yeah. <laughs> and then the no pad no pencil kind of vibe yeah. of just making stuff up on the spot Sam I'm curious so you alluded to the your 
feeling that there are moments of this album that are on the cusp of like real profundity and brilliance. Yeah. And when we have Dylan on the record, as you say, being like, I didn't really give a shit about what I was doing here. Uh-huh. Do you? And I don't think, I don't like, I don't think that, you know, I think it's possible that, that something great can come of a scenario where it wasn't even necessarily the author's intent to make it great in the ways that it is great. But I'm curious, do you think that it's a situation of like, Dylan is kind of so brilliant that even his kind of dashed off musings have this power to them? Is it just like a set of circumstances that happened that allowed this kind of unintentionally interesting thing to happen? Like to the extent that this album is good, like why do we think it's good? No, it's a good question. And it's something that I like battle with all the time for artists where it's like even their worst albums, I listen to them more than other artists' best albums. And I think what it comes down to for me is like, I look at whether an artist lost touch with their muse. Like I would say David Bowie lost touch with his muse in the 80s and was just kind of directionless. I don't ever think that totally happened with Dylan. Like, because I think there's always a trajectory that he's following when you zoom out and look at it as like a mosaic or whatever. Like, yeah. I, I mean, you can't look at a song like Born in Time and be like, it's not thought out. I mean, he wrote, wrote it a number of times. It, to me, like, that's a beautiful song. Yeah. Or something like, something like God Knows is something he clearly put effort into and tried a few different ways. I think Dylan is like, I don't know. I take what he says about his own work with a grain of salt. So it's like, there is like unbelievable. Yeah, I don't think there's like a deep meaning to uncover there. But I think there is stuff on here that is like a really good, um, like uh, it foreshadows the really compelling work he would do in this style later. And for that reason, I can't completely dismiss it. Yeah, well, God knows it's interesting because that's a, a leftover from I mean it's re-recorded but it was um I think there was a version of it recorded for Oh Mercy or it was uh part of that time the story is like that Lanois and him gotten uh these disagreements because he had all these other good songs that weren't recorded Lanois line about it was that like Dylan wanted was worried that he needed to save these you know, because he like some idea that he was running out of juice and he needed to save these for future use. Um, and God knows was one of those. Could so. we listen to a bit of God knows? So this song like structurally is pretty interesting. It starts with this very long introduction with no drums. It reminds me of Heroin by the Velvet Underground. God knows it's true. God knows there ain't anybody ever gonna take the place of you. And eventually the band kicks in, but not for a minute and a half or so. And then it just kind of fades out. God knows it's a struggle. It reminds me of something on the basement tapes. Mm. where it's just even though we know that he sort of composed this in advance because it was like an oh mercy outtake 
it has this kind of like dashed off strangeness elliptical unfinished quality to it that reminds me of like a slick kind of 90s update on some kind of weird thing he recorded for the basement tapes yeah well the basement tapes have a lot of that like the rest of the band slinks in as as they try to figure out what he's doing you know and so starting alone that kind of feeling of like dylan starting alone, like here's what we're doing and everyone else being like okay (laughs) which is a phenomenon on lots of his albums but the the approach in the basement tapes tends to be like all right now we kind of fall in behind bob gradually you know yeah that's one of my favorite songs on this record yeah i think it's a fantastic song um But I thought it would be a good segue into a song called Handy Dandy. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yes, Bard. Yes, Bard. <laughs> we can uh, put in the Yes, Bard soundboard there. <laughs> yes, uh, Bard. Wait, can we set this up with the great anecdote that Don was had about it, Andy? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, let's okay, just first listen to this group. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Again, that 64 again. I also believe that might be Dylan on accordion. Wow. According to the credits. I believe that. I think this song is funny because... Okay, the opening lyric that he just sang, Handy Dandy, Controversy Surrounds Him. He's been, in ba- he's been around the world and back again. Something in the moonlight still hounds him. Like, that's quite beautiful. I think that's a great way to open a song. And, like, had he named the titular character anything other than Handy Dandy, I would just feel that way about, what about it. Like, it why been, is this guy named Handy Dandy? What about Andy Andy? Yeah, he could have named him it could have been It could have been a different name that didn't sound, like, have that Handy, maybe, like, uh, somewhere between W.C. Handy and Howdy Doody kind of vibe. Yeah. Like... His howdy doody tribute. I don't think it's <laughs> a tip of the hat from the bard. Try to think why these particular nonsense words are so alienating. The thing that I think about this song mainly is like it sounds kind of it. It operates with the same guiding principles as Louis Louis in a way, just like right vacillating. I mean, Louis Louis he doesn't use the whatever the the major five chord, but it has that circular feeling and it kind of yeah like the heavy organ and meanders around and it's just like has that same kind of bar band tedium vibe and that sort of circular never-ending quality has to do perhaps with the way this song was recorded by at least the recollection of don was who says that before they recorded it uh, Bob talked to him about how uh, he had once been in a recording session for Miles Davis uh, who in the late 60s and 70s was famously uh, pursuing this approach of like extended relatively free imp- improvisation in the studio that would then be kind of like edited down into compositions from this like raw tape of improvising. And apparently 
Dylan made this comment to Don was, which is, as a side note, kind of amazing to imagine Dylan just sitting in and observing some 70s Miles Davis recording session. Uh, and Don was decided that they would <laughs> take a similar approach with the song Handy Dandy. Uh, and he says that the original take is 34 minutes long. Unbelievable. And features some amazing solos by Jimmy and Stevie Ray Vaughan. We picked the most appropriate four minutes and cut that together. Columbia Records could release a bootleg series box set of the unexpurgated Handy Dandy and Cats in the Well, implying that they used a similar process for Cats in the Well, though we don't know that for sure, just like they did with this in a silent way. And we were talking about this amongst ourselves, and I think that we would like to start a lobbying campaign uh, <laughs> for the original 34-minute-long jam of Handy Dandy to be released on a bootleg series or something. It's insane to imagine playing this groove for 34 minutes absolutely yeah insane. right there's nothing uh, the, there's nothing like exploratory sounding about the finished version so stevie ray <laughs> vaughn like was like, like wailing on this cosmic high apparently. <laughs> half an hour yeah because <laughs> yeah. there's like so there are dylan songs where i'm like yeah like i could listen to that for 30 minutes like just let him sit on it let him come up with more verses but this yeah. is not one of those songs no handed at all day. Yeah, I love that he was thinking about Miles Davis, like, because that there's a person who would just show up in a studio with, uh, at that time that he's talking about, with a big assortment, oversized assortment of great jazz musicians who didn't know exactly what the fuck was he was gonna do or want to do, and yeah, uh, you know, also like you know on the corner he brought you know whatever the sitar player from the Indian restaurant he was eating in, you know what I mean? Like, just yeah, this kind sure. of random. There approach. is a sensibility in common. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, as, you know, massive fans of, like, both these artists and their kind of whole vibes, if you didn't know about this record and somebody was like, dude, you haven't heard Under the Red Sky? There's this song on there that's, like, super influenced by, like, electric period Miles <laughs> Davis. And you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be the greatest thing I've ever heard. And you cue it up and it's like... Handy dandy. Handy dandy. <laughs> yes, Bard. Yeah, all I can say to that is yes, Bard. He gives <laughs> us what we Spark. need. It might not be what we want. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think it's also worth pointing out this album is mostly a failure. It didn't do so well commercially. I think the only single released from it was unbelievable. And despite, yes. despite a video with Molly Ringwald in it, that tried to cast Dylan as this cool American dude driving a pig. There's like a pig in the back of his car. Isn't he a chauffeur? Or at least he looks like one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a confusing color. Pig. pig. Yeah. Is chauffeuring a famous pig around? Which, as someone who. Yeah, I mean, I follow a ton of celebrity pigs on Instagram. It's like my whole niche. But. For some, there's just the, the video is almost like a Coke commercial or something. Did you get that vibe? Yeah. To before we move too far afield from the from the 35 minute jam on Handy Dandy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another song that is sort of has a similar heritage, uh, or two songs anyway. So 
as we were talking about before, Don was would kind of assemble these different bands. Like each day in the studio was a was a completely different band for Dylan to play with. Um, and on day four, apparently, uh, there is a band that included Bruce Hornsby on keys and Randy Jackson, later of American Idol fame, on mm-hmm. bass, uh, which yeah. resulted in the songs uh, "Born in Time." and TV talking song, two of my faves on this record, I would say. Oh, you're a TV, you're uh, a TTS guy. I am. That was the first one <laughs> on my early listens to this record where I'm like, I'm in this, I can relate to this music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Born in Time is this beautiful ballad. TV talking song kind of is another one of these like kind of mid 60s approximations. It sort of reminds me of Ballad of a Thin Man. It clearly has like this topical energy more so than than Thin Man does. It's clearly about TV, but kind of has this like we're in a time of confusion and and what what the hell's going on kind of energy. Has that kind of like amphetamine pulse to it. Uh, Again, this kind of like slick '90s version of that kind of thing, but kind of cool. But on the day that they recorded those songs, they apparently also recorded a quote-unquote from Don was very cool Grateful Dead style extended instrumental that featured Bob on harp I got to imagine that means like blues harmonica and not he's like yeah, not like sitting well, down like Joanna Newsom. unfortunately yeah, yeah yeah unfortunately that's another tape I'd love to hear like Hornsby and and Dylan and Randy Jackson just like going far out with the jams and also kind of leads us to Dylan's kind of funny weird proximity slash like extended flirtation with the grateful dead that was happening at this time. Yeah. That seems, I mean, you have the involvement of Hornsby who's also about to become a kind of temporary, but full fledged member of the dead soon after this. Uh, And there does seem to be something of that spirit in this music, although it's kind of hard to uh, pin down uh, but he had done this big joint tour with the Dead in '87. Then in '89, he called up the Grateful Dead's business office and asked to join. Yes, after like and kinda, apparently it was he crashed a show the previous night and he insisted on only doing Dead tunes and he couldn't remember any of the words for them and they like forced him to do Dylan tunes and they were all like <laughs> pissed about it. And then the next day he called. <laughs> They did uh, stuck inside of Mobile, but but Bob Weir sings it, uh, and it's it's okay. And they do uh, "Knocking on Heaven's Door." Finally, that's the only Dylan song that Dylan sings in that show, and it's pretty dreadful. And yeah, then he calls the next day and is like, "Can I be in the band?" And was apparently very narrowly voted down by one vote. And uh, they've never divulged uh, who it was. Yeah, this guy. Uh, who this guy Howard F. Weiner or Weiner who wrote a book about it speculates that it was either Phil Lesh, the bass player of the dead, or one of the two drummers who voted it down. But to think that there is some quantum reality not so distant from ours in which from eighty nine on <laughs> Dylan, just, Dylan just becomes a member of the Grateful Dead. It's pretty tantalizing to think about. He was happy to just join up with bands at this time, you know? 
Wilbur. Yeah, it seems like he kind of thought of himself as like, I'm just a working musician just like everybody else, or like liked to think of himself that way. I think about this thing Dylan once said about Jerry after he died, where he was like, he was the only person who knew what it was like to be me. Like, I think he felt a real kinship to like Jerry's responsibility to his fans and the way yeah. he was seen at the time. And I, I don't think it's far-fetched to think that maybe Dylan was trying to model his longevity or sustainability after what the dead had done. Footnote, the last song in this record, Cats in the Well, apparently in a show in 1992, a Dylan show, there exists a version of this, although it's hard to find a recording of it. Apparently they're out there. Jerry sat in for at least one performance of Cats in the Well. Oh, that's cool. I, I do like, like this song. This yeah. is another one on the let's, album that I'm a fan let's of. Put that I'd like on. to hear that. I also think this is one of the ones lyrically where his um, the imagery is at its like sharpest, where you can really see the juxtaposition he was going for. Surf rock vibe. Yeah. I'll say more than Modern Times, the recent Dylan album, this reminds me the most of his Together Through Life with all the accordion. Uh, Which, you know, Robert Hunter. Right, yeah, true. In that song, there's like a line, the cat's in the well and grief is showing its face, the world's being slaughtered and it's such a bloody disgrace. And like a line, a couplet like that, you can really hear the Dylan of the 21st century that was just like bloodthirsty and like totally nihilistic yeah baby your your kind of pointing out of the juxtaposition of the kind of whimsy and the darkness on this album is like it's a pretty compelling argument in favor of it even if it's uh you know there's always darkness on a dylan record like i don't think he could make something lighthearted even if he wanted to yeah yeah but I guess like there, the tension between those two things. I mean, this album is interesting for lots of reasons having to do with like the larger canon of Dylan. But if I was approaching it as its own thing, forgetting everything else I knew about Dylan and I didn't like it, which I don't think I would, uh, your argument, that would be like the most convincing thing for like what's interesting and, and kind of worthwhile about it is this kind of like uneasy coexistence between this youthful silly uh energy and the kind of apocalyptic stuff which lives a little further beneath the surface but is definitely there yeah and i mean it was like kind of a turning point for him like winston said earlier it should be noted he dedicated the album to his daughter i was about to say i love that idea like because he was his his marriage was falling apart at this time. I can't remember if they divorced before or after this album, but like he was just an absentee father at this point. And I just sort of like this idea that like you know like under the red sky, there's like bits of stories he would make bedtime stories he would have made up for her at some point, and just dot his daughter being like extremely weirded out. Um, <laughs> in a in a way, you know, it makes me think of uh, M Night Shyamalan's uh, iconic film, The Lady in the Water, which was just a movie he tried to make of a bedtime story that he would tell his daughter and is like really terrible and incomprehensible. I feel like maybe there's a little bit of that energy in 
the title track and Wiggle Wiggle. What it reminds me of is um, Neil Young Trans, which was yeah. another album for a child. Like in theory, like Neil Young made that album about like his inability to talk to um, like his disabled child. And so I think Neil fans and critics at the time heard it and were thinking like, what the fuck is he talking about? But for him, there was something like really specific being communicated. I wouldn't extend the same sympathy to these songs. Yeah, I was but, just going to say. <laughs> but it is kind of a window into like the type, because Dylan also said that he made this album like late at night because he'd be recording Traveling Wilburys all day and then he'd have to go to the studio and do this all night. Yeah, And there is a sense of like Dylan singing lullabies or Dylan telling stories to it that is kind of endearing or is at least kind of like intimate in a way he doesn't often let himself be. But for the most part, I think the songs kind of fail, and I think he felt the same way about them. One of the really beautiful things about trans is, so for people who don't know, that's like this kind of famous 80s Neil Young record where um, he's using a vocoder on a lot of the material, and it has this kind of like tinny early electropop sound that was like really mystifying to people at the time, uh, but is kind of awesome. And like you said, Sam, there is this like whole thematic subtext about his like struggles to kind of get through to his son that I think is like really elegantly and beautifully expressed in the music itself and the way that it sounds. And on this record, we have that kind of the dedication to his daughter, these themes that seem to be drawn from nursery rhymes. And then this kind of whole other thing we're talking about, which is like this kind of plasticky, weird 90s attempt to create like the sound of classic period Dylan that seems more maybe a product of Don was than of Dylan himself. But I'm interested in like, are is that is the way the record sounds at all related to the ideas that he seems to be getting um trying to get at in the lyrics like is there some kind of holistic relationship there if there is i have to admit i can't really see it i i really don't think so he said in like sometime later in the 90s that he just was it was just to express the disgust for like studios just for like the yeah. studio experience the logistics of it and the creativity of it i, I it will never make sense to me why he was already absorbed in trying to do this strip back live thing and like um really play with forms and throughout of music throughout his catalog and traditional music and kind of strip back the basics and then why he felt that he wanted to do a record like this two years after he was already doing that i don't know yeah i th i think in the end that is partially why no matter the ambition that some songs have, this will never feel like a major component of his story is because there is just a disconnect between what he's trying to do and how it sounds at yeah. the best songs and the worst songs. It still doesn't quite have the vision that he'd have by the end of the decade on his records. Can I point out that there's a lot of speculation that he was like really drinking a lot at this time? Also, oh, interesting. Um, like Ronnie, there's a story in this sounds biography of Ronnie Hawkins seeing him in Toronto. I not at the same show you're taught that the Don was thing happened at, but yeah, he was doing a show and he asked Ronnie Hawkins, you know, who is his 
old pal from way way back in the early 60s uh to join him for one more night which is from nashville skyline and uh hawkins said he kicked off the song in the wrong key i knew then that we had a monkey act so the guitar player is showing him what key to go to but meanwhile bob is too loud to hear him hawkins who lived very very hard himself said right. he was having a little bit too much fun at the o'keefe center too hard for him he's too old to be drinking and doing all that shit now that's strictly for under 30s and if you don't die before you're 30 you quit and he was still having a bit too much fun but he didn't do it all the time i'm sure he couldn't he wouldn't be alive <laughs> which suggests he was like i mean that that account suggests he was going really hard you know and he's 49 yeah. years old i think you don't really associate Dylan with like this image of hard partying. No, certainly but, not in his late forties. But you know, there's stories of these are when stories about him just people finding him wandering along the side of the road and stuff like that, and where he <laughs> yeah. started only wanting to stay in cheap motels in the outskirts of town. Like when his really eccentric behavior that we like may associate more now with like later Dylan. I think that was really starting to set in here. I feel like if I were to sum up this album, one way to do it would be to say it's Bob Dylan, one of the greatest artists America has ever produced, not giving a shit. <laughs> yeah. I'd use an adjective to describe it that's usually applied to albums by artists half the age he was at, but to me it's a promising album. <laughs> it's like an album where it sounds like he is ready to engage with some of the things that are associated with his music that he doesn't need to be coded in Lanois effects to get there. Not that I don't like the Lanois records, but there is something about a record like this that I think like he used as a blueprint for how he would age gracefully into the 21st century. But there's just, there's like some kind of block and the drinking makes sense, but so does the fact that he was just totally burnt out, recording all day with the Wilburys, heading to the studio at night, not knowing who his band would be. Um, those things make it a really interesting album to listen to, but I don't think it makes it an essential part of his story. And once again, this episode of Late Era is brought to you by the fine folks at Grady's Cold Brew, <sighs> a so wonderful, small, independently owned, local to us business in the Bronx, churning out the best damn cold coffee you are likely to find in New York City or anywhere else. Uh, I just want to take a minute to say, not only does Grady make the best coffee, he's also a very incisive music critic. Uh, when he came on our pod, I was so impressed by his depth of knowledge about Chicago and soft rock in general. And uh, he brings that level of thoroughness and dedication, and even more so, to uh, his main pursuit in life, which is the coffee he makes. Uh, whether you're brewing with the kit, whether you are buying bottles in your local grocery store, you are simply getting a smooth, high-energy, classy, uh, just all-around great coffee. You're not going to regret it. Take it from us. We've been drinking it for years, and, uh, and we love it. So go get yourself some Grady's. Amen. Grady'sColbrew.com. U.S. customers can use the code LATEERA20 for 20% off their first order. 
And that brings us to the final segment of the show. Uh, something that we have been calling fantasy or delusion. Uh, it is the metric by which we judge every late era album. Uh, it is a reference to uh, the Billy Joel album of solo, piano, classical pieces, fantasies, and delusions. And I'm going to be brief because we uh, kind of spent some time summing up we our final long. thoughts about this album. And I'm going to say that this was a decision I spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, I thought that I had come to my conclusion before we started taping and this uh, enlightening, thoughtful conversation with my friends has changed my mind. Uh, I thought it was a delusion. Now I think it's a fantasy. I think that even even though it's kind of sloppy and disorganized and feels incoherent, there is enough of a spark and there's enough tension uh, and at the end of the day, Bob Dylan is still Bob Dylan. And there's a few great songs that I will return to after this is over. And uh, it's a fantasy. I'll go. I also uh, will call it a fantasy uh, because there is some stuff here that you will not find on another Bob Dylan album. You won't find it under the red sky. You won't find a wiggle wiggle. You won't find... Um, handy dandy the weird nursery rhyme fixation and this thing about his daughter i mean it's got to be a fantasy if it has some piece of the dylan pie that you can't find on another dylan album like i might call down in the groove or something that feels legitimately jumbled this is a is a is a specific kind of fantasy even though it's also the fantasy of don was <laughs> we're fi- we're still figuring out how to define <laughs> fantasy yeah but like that's what that's what it's all about baby that's why we do a podcast so we grow yeah it's a fantasy for me too i love albums like this um it's also the great kind of late era album that can really feel like your own when you connect to it just because it doesn't have this mythology to it or this culture around it it's like when you connect with a song like born in time i don't know it can feel um just like this un discovered gem or like winston said like a window into a part of dylan you didn't know existed or you hadn't heard elsewhere um for that reason yeah it's a fantasy for me i i like this album all right guys well thanks so much for listening to late era and uh we will see you next time (laughs) can we give him a hint about what we're discussing next uh i don't like to give him a hint i'll just say it's a member of the monkeys who was not monkeying around on this industrial rock rock opera. Mm-hmm. Make of that what you will, folks. Um, well, we're not a, we're not nice men, but we know a little something about old people's music. So I hope I'm glad you're sticking around for the ride, and uh, we'll see you next time. The Late Era Podcast is hosted by Andy Cook, Justin Cook Wilson, and Sam Sadowski. It is edited and produced by Winston Cook Wilson. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJ Logo designed by Liz Art Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media. 